So we're into week two now of a series that we've called The Way of Jesus. Uh, we're back studying uh, the biography of Jesus written by one of his friends and followers named Matthew. And in this particular section, the passages that we're looking at each speak to something that Matthew wants to teach his original readers about the way of Jesus. That's as creative as we get for this series about what it looks like. Uh, to follow Jesus properly. And I'm really pumped about this morning's passage, the one that we're going to look at, because I feel like this morning's passage is about as relevant and as powerful a message to the 21st century North American church as we could probably get. And so I want to dive right in. If you've got a Bible or uh, a Bible app on your portable device, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 where it says this. It says, After six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Today's passage begins uh, with Jesus inviting a subset of his original disciples to go on a little expedition with him. And uh, just to put yourself into, into those, those guys' shoes or sandals, appreciate what a big deal it would be for them to, to get that invitation. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the last time you were involved or included in an inner circle, but it feels pretty good when you are, doesn't it? You know, the, the, the boss invites you into their office to, to get your personal opinion on something or to give you, you know, a, a, a kind of a side project that you're going to work on directly with them. Or at concerts, you think about at concerts when people go crazy, when the, the artist brings someone from the crowd up on stage with them and includes them in their next in their next number, or when a parent or grandparent, you know, takes a child out maybe for their birthday or something and has some one-on-one -on -one undivided special time. You know, those kind of things represent what's going on here. And you can imagine for these particular three disciples of the group of Jesus' original disciples, this would have been a really cool experience to be invited on this excursion for like multiple days with Jesus up to the top of this mountain. This, for them, uh, was a really big deal. Well, that only starts there. Because in verse 2, uh, it says this. It says there, meaning at the top of this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. As if their day couldn't get any better, something extraordinary happens at the top of this mountain. The passage says that Jesus was, uh, the language it uses is transfigured. The Greek word is literally the word metamorpho. So like he was metamorphosized or like he was transformed. And, you know, Matthew doesn't get into technical detail into what exactly he was transformed into. But he gives us some clues based on the, the language that he uses. He says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And in those light-like references, shining and dazzling and things like that, he's kind of referring metaphorically to the divine. It's as if Jesus went from his human form into some divine form that just dazzled them. And then on top of that, it says that he was then communicating, dialoguing with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, if you're unfamiliar with them, were two of kind of the heavyweights or heroes of the Old Testament of the Bible. And not just any old hall of famers, but two representative icons of two major phases of the Old Testament. A phase called the law, where God instituted kind of his rule book and his vision for life through the leadership primarily of Moses. 
And the era of the prophets where spokespeople were provided by God to apply that law to people's lives according to the, uh, the lives of the nation of Israel. And Elijah was in that era, one of the kind of poster prophets in that era. And so together they kind of represent what's known as all the law and the prophets, which was a phrase in Jesus' day that referred to all of the scriptures or all of what we understand as the the Old Testament today. In fact, Matthew has recorded in, in private, uh, prior parts of his biography, Jesus using that term to refer to the scriptures in his day, all the law and prophets. So here you have Jesus transfigured, representing all of this divine kind of glorious form, together with all of God's historical activity, all of God's vision represented in all the law and the prophets in, in Moses and Elijah. And this, this one huge spiritual smorgasbord, this one like wow moment that these, these select disciples got to enjoy. Pretty incredible experience. So it shouldn't surprise us then, to get their reaction to all of this, in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, uh, it is good for us to be here. The understatement of the year. He says, if you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter doesn't want this moment to, to end. He thinks this is incredible. And so he makes the suggestion that he puts up some Shelters. And this is important to understand because the term shelters is actually, the, the original language, it's the term tabernacle, which means tent, but more specifically was the kind of tent that was created, particularly in the era of Moses and the nation of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness, where they gathered to worship. And these tabernacles that they, would, that they would build eventually became the Jewish temple were understood to be the place where God's presence resided. That's why they gathered there for worship because in the temple it was understood and in the tabernacle it was understood that that's where God's presence resided. And so, you know, Peter isn't just suggesting this for shelter, isn't just suggesting this because as he looks around in the forest of the top of this mountain, those are all the resources that he feels are available that he can kind of whip something together. Peter is kind of declaring this as a experiencing the presence of God in his midst moment, and he wants to represent that by establishing something that appropriately houses or accommodates the presence of God properly in the form of a tabernacle. But what he's also saying that we've got to appreciate here is that in their understanding of what a tabernacle or what a temple did, a tabernacle didn't just represent where the presence of God lived. It represented where the presence of God lived continuously. And in saying it's good for us to be here and desiring to make these tabernacles, these sort of shrines for these, these, this divine presence to reside, Peter is desiring to keep that moment with him, to kind of prolong that moment, you know, in perpetuity, to, to, to kind of create a, an ongoing experience of this glorious wow moment. He doesn't want this wow moment to end. You know, for Peter, this probably represents the whole reason that he's, you know, dropped everything to, to follow Jesus. This probably defines what he ultimately wants his faith to be about. This is Peter's spiritual dream come true, to experience this kind of glory and to try to kind of house and accommodate it so he can experience it in an ongoing way, so that he can enjoy the wonder, the thrill, the exhilaration, and the stimulation of God's spiritual presence in his midst. In his midst. And that, as we see, becomes a little bit of a problem. Look at what verse 5 says. It says, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, 
And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. What happens next has a few important details. First of all, notice kind of the, the, the background or the context or even the weather of what's happening in their midst all of a sudden. Where Matthew was formerly, formerly using the language of light and brightness representing, you know, the, the upside of the divine. Now he describes the presence of a cloud. What was bright has now kind of become gloomy or what was light has become dark and heavy, kind of intense. And then from that cloud comes the voice of God saying almost exactly the same thing that Matthew recorded God saying in the sacred moment of Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist, where he says, this is my son whom, I'm, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. But then Matthew adds on this little detail and the differentiation comparatively is important for us to, to take note of what he's highlighting here. He says here in verse five, listen to him. Listen to him which is kind of awkward considering that in this passage, Matthew hasn't recorded Jesus saying anything yet. So what does he mean when he's saying, listen to him? Well, scholars assume that what he's referring to is the conversation that Matthew last recorded. The conversation that we studied last week in the beginning of this series. The conversation that Jesus had correcting his, his disciples' understanding of what it meant for him as Jesus to be the promised Messiah, to be the Savior sent from God who would one day be king for all eternity. Jesus corrected their understanding of what, what it meant for him to establish his kingdom because he wasn't going to come with a bang. He was going to come in the form of a suffering servant. The conversation last week was Jesus predicting his death and helping his disciples understand that the way to that glory was the way of the cross. The way of sacrificial, emptying, selfless love that gave your life up for others. That was the way that we understood Jesus became the Messiah and the Savior sent from God. It wasn't glorious. It was sacrificial, ultimately giving up his life. And so what God is saying to Peter here in listen to him is listen to his way in contrast to your way, which we hope is what they understand as the Story ends in verse six. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. In this short little passage, a handful of Jesus' disciples go up a mountain to be alone with Jesus. And at the end of this passage, a handful of Jesus' disciples come down a mountain alone with Jesus. The only thing is that presumably they came down the mountain a whole lot different than when they went up the mountain because of their experience on the mountain and what God taught them through it. In their experience, they, they got to enjoy the wonder of God's glorious presence through Jesus' transfiguration. And they wanted nothing more than to experience more, than, more of that because of the way that it, it thrilled them, the way that it stimulated them, the way that you know, the, it kind of satisfied all of their dreams for why they embarked on a journey of faith in Jesus in the first place. But their thinking was corrected by God when God said to listen to them and brought to mind the teachings of Jesus that said that the glory of God, the true glory of Jesus as the Savior and as the Messiah 
would only be experienced through his death, through suffering and through sacrifice. And in listening to him, God is saying that their faith isn't to be about living on the top of mountains and isn't to be about propagating the experience of the thrill of God's glory. Their faith is to be all about listening to Jesus, about doing what he says and embracing his way of life in living a self-sacrificing, emptying love that gives our lives up for others as well. That's the message that Matthew hopes his original hearers understand in this mountaintop experience and encounter with these original disciples and the message that frankly God hopes that we can apply today. And so I wonder if you can appreciate why I feel like this is such a significant message for people like you and me today. See, I look around and I feel like in 21st century, at least North American Christianity, our consumerism has taken hold. And what our consumerism has done is kind of oriented a faith experience that is primarily about us. And about our satisfaction and our gratification and about our thrill and about our experience. And so often what happens is we, you know, in the, in the guise of a life of faith, we define faith by, you know, positioning ourselves and just creating a routine where we expose ourselves to environments that stimulate us spiritually. And the more stimulating, the better those environments. Ideally, we expose ourselves to wow environments and the Cycling through of repeatedly exposing ourselves to wow environments is what it means to live a life of faith. You ask many people and they'll say to be a Christian is to go to church or to go to programs to participate and to expose yourself to these environments that stimulate you spiritually. Where God is inviting people in the same way that he did with his original disciples to listen to Jesus to actually apply his teachings to our way of life so that our lifestyle is different and so that we live more and more progressively the way Jesus lived, particularly in a self-sacrificing, emptying servanthood of others. And instead of living a lifestyle of exposing ourselves to these environments of stimulation to us, we engage in a lifestyle that progressively, increasingly looks more and more like Jesus. There's a big difference between those two between people who are going places and people who are growing into the image of Jesus. An author a few years ago named Kyle Eidemann wrote a book that kind of propagated this metaphor uh, with the phrase, not a fan. The book's called Not a Fan. And he contrasted these two dynamics of faith between being a fan of Jesus and being a legitimate follower of Jesus. And I think he's onto something that we're, we're tracking with today. Because he said being a fan of Jesus is all about positioning yourself in environments where you can kind, kind of vicariously absorb the passion and energy of other people. You can, you can position yourself in environments that stimulate you spiritually. And because of that spiritual stimulation, think that you're tracking in a life of faith. But your life isn't actually any different because all you are is a fan of Jesus. Where a follower of Jesus, he says, is someone who actually pays attention to what Jesus is saying and listens to him in the sense that they try to apply that to their lives. So their lives are constantly changing, increasingly looking the way Jesus would look if he lived the life in your, in your shoes. And more and more you begin to demonstrate the fruit of his spirit and compassion and generosity and love and grace and particularly self-sacrificing, 
emptying servanthood to other people. There's a big difference, he says, between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And I think that's what God's tapping into today, wanting us to consider which, which we are. Now, let me be clear. Um, we're talking about exposing ourselves to environments that are spiritually stimulating. That does not mean that mountaintop wow experiences are necessarily bad things. I want to be clear about that. Um, you know, Jesus brought his disciples in this passage up the mountain to a mountaintop experience and he wasn't sinning doing so. And, you know, around here, there are mountaintop experiences that we encourage people to be a part of. You know, that we, we, we host one every summer by simulcast out of a church in Chicago called the Global Leadership Summit. And we invite everyone to participate. And I hope that, you know, if you're taking notes today, you would kind of save the date of Thursday and Friday, August 11th and 12th for this year's GLS, which for us grown-ups around here is kind of a mountaintop experience where we can be envisioned and, you know, thrilled with the wonder of God's vision for our lives. We send little kids off to summer camp and hope that in that space that they create and to give undivided attention to, to spiritual things that God would show up in mountaintop experience kinds of ways. And we pray into that because of the value that those experiences can have. Even the environment that we're gathered in today, we would hope in some seven-day sort of interval would be a kind of wow experience that would be spiritually stimulating and help us, you know, kind of recover from the grind of the last week and refuel us and recharge us, you know, set us, you know, afresh for, for another week in the life of faith. You know, mountaintop experiences, wow experiences aren't a bad thing. The issue, and, and Eidelman would refer to this as well in his book, Not a Fan. The difference is which is the means to the end and which is the end. Because a fan of Jesus, a person who just wants to live a life of faith synonymous with exposing themselves to experiences that spiritually stimulate themselves, you know, for, for that person, the mountaintop experience is the end. That's the whole point of your life of faith is to experience those kinds of moments. Where a follower can expose themselves to those type of moments as a means to the end, as a means, as we saw in Matthew chapter 17, as a means to live more like Jesus because you're listening to him and applying what he teaches to your life so that you live progressively more like him. It's a lifestyle where the end is participating in these experiences versus a lifestyle where participating in those experiences is a means to the end of living more like Jesus every moment of every day. So the big question is, which one defines you and which one defines me to a greater degree? Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? In your programs this morning, we've got a set of questions there designed to serve as a bit of a reflection tool. And uh, in addition to taking some time this morning to personally reflect on this, I hope that this will become the basis of our conversations this week with our life groups and uh, with our family and friends and peers and whatnot. So uh, we're going to put these on the screen. Just consider these this morning to begin the reflection process of whether you're a fan of Jesus or legitimately a follower of Jesus. Which, which approach to a life of faith are you pursuing? So, you know, consider, for example, are you committed to going to church or other Christian events, but casual about growing in your love for those in need, those who don't know Jesus or those who are different from you. This question taps into the difference between going and growing. What defines your faith and what you understand faith to be about more? Is faith more about going or is it about growing? 
Another question to consider. Are you passionate about what you and others believe, but passive about how you treat the people around you? This is the question of whether your faith is more about stimulating you, you know, in this case, mentally stimulating you, or is your faith more about transforming you? Is faith something that just stimulates you theoretically or transforms you practically? Consider this question. Are you inspired by the faith of spiritual leaders, quote unquote, but complacent about your own relationship with Jesus. You know, this is one of Eidelman's kind of differentiations where, you know, a fan of Jesus lives a vicarious faith versus a follower of Jesus who lives a personal faith. They don't just watch other people follow Jesus. They're trying to follow Jesus themselves. And then finally, you know, are you clear on what needs to change in others, but unclear about what needs to change in your heart your attitude, and your life. You know, this is the difference between a perspective that's external compared to a perspective that's internal, looking moment by moment on what Jesus would be saying to us and how we can make changes to live more like him in the power that his resurrected spirit provides. Are you a fan of Jesus or are you aspiring to live as a follower of Jesus? I think that Christians all across at least our continent in this day and age should be haunted by that question. I know that us as churches ought to be haunted by that question too. You know, when we look at the way that we spend our money and the way that we, you know, design our, our model of ministry as a, as a church, the question that we've consistently had to ask ourselves is what way of life are we inviting people into as a community? Are we inviting people into a way of life of just participating in spiritually stimulating environments for them? Or are we inviting people into things that are a means to a greater end and ultimately inviting people into what we hopefully do around here called a lifestyle of full devotion? Does the way that we do our church and the ministries that we offer, the way that we structure and organize things, foster a lifestyle of full devotion? Does it foster followership or does it mistakenly foster fanship that's a question we need to ask frankly I was really encouraged uh, this week by a story I heard from someone who was uh, at last weekend's shelter retreat uh, our speaker at the shelter retreat last weekend was someone from one of the largest churches in all of Canada you know they were on the leadership team uh, formerly of uh, one of the largest churches in Canada who are experts at creating these wow experiences that gather literally thousands and thousands of people from all across Ontario. But by the end of the retreat, they were sharing with some of our leaders with kind of a tear in their eye that in their experience of the 60 or so who were part of this shelter retreat just last weekend, in their life, they had never experienced a picture of the kingdom of heaven on earth more compelling than what they had experienced in the relationships that they enjoyed in that shelter retreat. They were part of something that created incredible wow moments. Some of the best wow moments in Canada, but they admitted that they had never experienced more of a taste of the kingdom of God than in this group of 60 in the shelter retreat. And it encouraged me not just because of what our church is trying to be about in increasing ways. It encouraged me because of what the big idea of the passage in Matthew 17 is today that I believe is so profound. That if you really want to experience the glory of God, if you really want to experience the, the, the full glory of the person and work of Jesus, it happens through listening to him. It happens through the way of embracing his way of life. It happens through a lifestyle of sacrifice 
and in that sense, suffering and giving yourselves to others and servanthood. The way of ultimate glory, both in this life and the next, if you really want to experience it, doesn't happen by chasing experiences that are spiritually stimulating. It happens by pursuing a lifestyle that increasingly looks more like the suffering servant, sacrificial person of Jesus Christ. That's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus and the way of enjoying the most of him through a lifestyle of living as a follower of his, not just a fan. So the question this morning is, which one are you? And more importantly, which one do you and I want to be from here on in? Let's pray. God in heaven, thanks uh, again for just the gift of your word and the relevance that it has to our lives today. I pray that you would be speaking to each one of our hearts and helping us to real clearly, really soberly reflect on whether the understanding, whether the vision of faith that we've embraced has really been one of just being a fan of Jesus or whether we've really grasped the invitation that you provide for us to follow Jesus, to learn of him and to listen to him in order to progressively live more like him. God, touch us by your spirit today. Convict us where we need to change. Change our minds and hearts so that we aspire and pursue passionately the lifestyle that you want to invite us into and help us to be quick to encourage one another to live that way. Please fill us up as a community full of followers of Jesus, not just fans of Jesus, and help us to be quick to give you the credit as we encourage each other, as we invite others into that adventure where we can truly taste and experience the wonder of your glory. Thanks that we get to be those people all because of the death and resurrection of your son, whom you love, the person of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.